You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. We've been in this series. Today's the last week we concluded to today. Uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and it is my favorite movie. George Bailey is uh, given a chance to see the significance of his life and what life would have been without him. His life was falling apart. Uh, Everything around him was falling apart. He's facing prison and scandal and uh, and all he's done his whole life is just love and care and sacrifice everything he has for those in his community, uh, going completely broke in order to provide and care for the people in his community. Uh, but when the time came and it looked like he was in trouble, uh, he was afraid and fearful of what it might do. So knowing he had an insurance policy, he went to a bridge to throw himself off the bridge so that at least his family could have the insurance money to survive. Um, but God then steps in, and an angel named Clarence uh, shows up to help him. Now, theologically, that's not usually how God works, though God can do anything. And just so that you know, uh, angels don't get their wings every time a bell rings. That's not in the Bible, but it makes for a fun story. Given a chance to see the significance of his life, he wants to live after he sees what his life would have been like without him. So he runs home, and when he runs into the house, he's like grabbing his kids, and he's grabbing his wife, and he's like touching her. Are you for real? Is it, you know, he's just blown away with this, this intense amount of love and affection and, and hope and sense of life and joy. And, uh, and as you saw there at the inning, all of a sudden people start coming in. They go, George, we heard you were in trouble and the whole town got together. I would have liked to play that whole clip, but it's like seven minutes long. So they all come in and like, George, as soon as we heard, everybody got all their money together. And they're pulling this basket and loads of people are coming in one by one, just filling up. And we heard you were in trouble, you know, and it was amazing. And uh, it's pretty emotional if you're involved in the movie like I am. I'm like, man, this is so, you know, 20, 30, I've seen it over 30 times. And I'm like, it still gets me in my heart. So people are pouring out. And, of course, there at the end, his brother comes in, and they make a toast to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. So what I want to talk to you about today is what is true riches? How do you define rich, okay? Do you define rich through, through money or stuff, or do you define rich through, uh, you know, things or through some sort of accolades or some, some stature? Do you define it by a house or by a vehicle? Do you define, uh, you know, rich by, uh, you know, by people, you know, by the number of Facebook friends you have or how many likes you have on a post? Well, today I want to talk to you about how the Bible defines rich, okay? But before we do, I want to talk to you about the life stealers, the things that will ultimately make you feel poor. Here's a, few, here's a list of the few things that if you pursue, you will be wealthy, but you will still be poor in spirit. So this is what it says. Uh, the Bible talks about, by the way, if you read Ecclesiastes, it's 12 chapters, it's tiny. The 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes unwraps these life stealers. The first one is this. Ecclesiastes 5 mentions that stuff, money, and wealth never, sacrifi- uh, never satisfied. 
I mean, when it comes to things, when immediately when we think of wealth, we usually think bank accounts. We usually think about, you know, uh, your, your investments. You think about, you know, your legacy, what, what you're going to be leaving behind. That's not true wealth. Because even though you are rich and you have possessions and stuff, it will never satisfy you because uh, you're always on to the next thing or the next dollar amount, or the next zero at the end of that number. Just look at Hollywood. Here's a great example. Uh, Wealth with extreme sadness, depression, and suicide and failed marriages. Because possessions and money, wealth does not equal true riches. Another life stealer is going to be pleasures. That means we're often told, do whatever makes you feel happy. You know, pursue your heart. Pursue your dream. Do what is on your heart to do. Just go and have fun. Adventure. Seize the day. YOLO. All that. Just pleasure, right? Let me tell you something, though. Ecclesiastes 1 says that when we get what we want and when we achieve what we have and when we experience what we want, we're still not satisfied because we're on to the next thrill. We're on to the next thing. We're on to the next person because it never lasts. Often, when we pursue pleasure, it leaves behind broken relationships and broken families. We cannot trust our heart. We cannot trust our desires because pleasures will leave us unsatisfied. Another life stealer is going to be performance. That means if you work hard and achieve your goals, and if you are, uh, you've achieved and you've uh, got this sense of stature, maybe you've got, you know, that, that promotion or that title that you wanted at work, or you finally got that, that grade point average that you always wanted, or you got that trophy, or you got those medals. Ecclesiastes 4 says that always working, achieving your status, but never fully satisfied Success never will make you feel rich. There's not a number of trophies or medals. There's not a title or nameplate that will ever make you feel rich. Because performance will make you or leave you feeling poor. Another one is position, status. That means that promotion, that car, those clothes, that purse, those shoes, that house, those things, those status symbols will only leave you wanting more and you'll end up feeling poor. And then the last one is uh, life stealers is pursuits. Um, that means if you just, some people, they just, they just, they're workaholics. They just, or they're, they're, they're all about the workout, right? They're all about staying fit. The second they get up to the time they go to bed, all they're thinking about is their Uh, food or their fitness or their job or their work or their car or the, you know, it's just a sense of staying busy. If I can just be active, if I can just have this sense of, of that I'm doing something, maybe I'll feel and fill the void that I have inside. But guys, only, the only thing you'll receive out of that kind of life is stress, ulcers, heart attacks, and probably loneliness as you leave people behind pursuing the things that you feel will make you happy. But ultimately, they will steal the life from you, and they will leave you feeling poor. That's God saying amen. So there are three things that define true riches in the Bible. I'm going to tell you what they are straight up top, and then we're going to take a look at each. The three things that define wealth in the Bible are simply, if you're rich in generosity, 
rich with great relationships and rich in grace. We're going to talk about each one of them. Here's the first one, rich in generosity. Now, when we talk about generosity, you're like, oh, what is, where is it going on? Well, what is generosity? It starts right here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. It says, godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. You know what? When you, first of all, the first step to generosity is realizing you are rich by being content with what you have. There is a sense that you will never feel rich until you are happy with what you have, until you are understanding that what you have been given is what God has for you at this time, at this season in your life, and until you learn to be content, you'll never, you'll never feel rich, ever. That's the first step to feeling rich. That's the first step to generosity because generosity is the fruit of that contentment. Guys, listen, this is how I define generosity. It's understanding the role of our resources and possessions in life and freely using them for kingdom business. That is generosity. Let me define it again if you want to write it down. Understanding the role of our resources and possessions in life and freely using them for kingdom business. He goes on to say after he says a key is contentment, he then defines the fruit of that contentment just a few verses later in 1 Timothy, same chapter, chapter 6, verse 17. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So first of all, he says, don't get all caught up in the stuff, and you need to realize that what you have been given has been richly given to you by God to enjoy. It's not yours. It's not your achievement. It's God's blessing. But then he says this, instruct them to do good, to be rich, in good works, to be generous and be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life or riches indeed. True riches is generosity and storing up for the future of eternity. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6.20. Jesus challenged his disciples to true riches by investing in the kingdom of God. He says, store up your treasures, not on earth, where it will all corrode and corrupt and die and be spent or fall apart or go away. He said, but in heaven, by using your resources for eternal change. Now, we're actually going to be unpacking this this, uh, eternal investment in January a little bit later, but here's basically what he's talking about. He's talking about helping others with physical and spiritual needs, using your resources to help others physically and spiritually in need. For example, Rowlett and Garland were devastated uh, by this tornado. This isn't, we're not talking Alabama. This isn't Mississippi. This isn't, man, those poor folks out in Louisiana. This is our neighbors, you know, our family, our friends, and, and generous people give and help and give of their own resource with nothing, expecting nothing in return because you're making a heavenly investment and you're helping someone meet a physical need in the name of Christ and you're giving your resources to a spiritual need, which is for them to know Christ. That 
is generosity defined by the Bible. That is when you give accordingly that makes a difference. Now, I'm going to wrap up this idea because we're going to, again, talk about this later on in January. But I want to tell you this because some of you are like, why does the Bible talk so much about money? Why does the Bible talk so much about generosity? Because it does a lot. I'll give you three reasons, and then we're on to the second rich, a true rich of life. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about generosity for three reasons. Number one, it meets a very real need in others' lives. That's as basic as, as it gets. Physical and spiritual needs are met when you're generous. When you're not generous, physical and spiritual needs are not met. And God has called the church, Christians, he's called people in general to be generous because it meets a very real need in other people's lives. The second reason, it breaks greed off our lives. You see, if we don't learn to be generous, we will be materialistic and we will have the more monster gnawing at us, talking to us, growling at us, and everywhere we go, we're going to want more and more and we're going to seek more, we're going to crave more. But you see what generosity does? It breaks greed and materialism off our life. If you struggle with just wanting more all the time, then the answer to that is Understanding true riches through contentment and generosity. Here's the third reason why the Bible talks so much about generosity is because it keeps money and possessions in their proper place in our life. Jesus spent a whole chapter in Matthew 6. He says, you can't serve money and God. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not, but the love of money is. And there's another verse that says, there are people whose hearts, their spiritual lives have been shipwrecked because of their pursuit of money. Money can destroy lives. That love, that desire, when we learn to be generous, it puts it in its proper place in our life. It helps us not to trust money, but to trust God because that money, that account, that house, that car, all of that will pass away. So Jesus says invest in eternal investment. When you do that, you're rich. You're rich. So that's number one. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Number one, rich in generosity. Here's number two. The second area that defines true riches is rich with great relationships. And uh, this is about friends and family. I mean, I'm not talking about just having friends. I'm talking about certain kinds of friends, which we're going to talk. We're going to spend the bulk of our time today talking about friendship. And I'm talking about family. And not just like bloodlines, but those, like who is family? Family, of course, is our blood family. But it's also our church family. And it's also those who are close enough that they're like family. You know those kind of folks? We have a lot of close like family folks. We have our church family and we have our blood family. Some of you, you don't have too many blood family around. Or maybe you don't have any around, but you still have family. It's called the body of Christ. It's called the church. And uh, some of you, you have friends that are like family. They're like a brother, like a sister. They're like a mom and dad to you. That's family. Those are close relationships. What defines a friend? Well, a friend could be, uh, well, it could be those that are close to you. It could be there's different levels of friends, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. So in the movie, right there at the clip, uh, that Clarence, the angel, wrote in a book, he says, no one is a failure who has friends. That's one of the big themes of It's a Wonderful Life. Looking around the room, George had friends, right? And when it says that the richest man in town, his brother was not talking about that basket of money that people pitched in to help him after he sacrificed his whole life for them. 
He was talking about the relationships in the room. Those people, that family that he was holding, his wife, his kids, those in that room that believed in him. Many struggle with friendships today. Many struggle with their family relationships, especially as you grow older. Friends and family are hard to maintain. In fact, some of you in this room as adults have a very hard time making friends or meeting new friends or even having friends. But when this life is over, when we're coming to the end of our life and uh, we're laying in that bed or we are at that moment where we are realizing that we only have moments left to live, or days left to live, we're not going to be thinking about our bank accounts. We're not going to be thinking about the zeros behind our uh, income. We're not going to be thinking about our investment plan so much. We're not going to be talking or thinking about the house or the car. We're going to be thinking about our family. We're going to be thinking about our friends. We're going to be, because I know, because when I had cancer a few years ago, I really spent a lot of time thinking about this, and, and I just wish, I think, man, I just want to make sure that I can hug my kids more, that I can kiss my wife more, that I can hug her more, and that I could just talk with my friends more and be with them more. I mean, that's riches in life. That's great relationships are great riches Used often in weddings, Ecclesiastes 4, I use it in weddings myself, is actually a verse about friendship. Let's take a look at it. Verse 9 and 10 says, two are better than one, talking about friends, because they have a good return for the labor. That means you can do twice as much work as if you're alone. So he's talking about practically, it's great. But then he also says, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who fails and has no one or has no friends to help them up. Proverbs 27, 9 says, The heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume and incense. Man, good friendship, good family relationships, man, they're so peaceful and life-giving. They're like, man, a beautiful scent in a house. Man, they're just so peaceful. They're so assuring. They're so comforting. That's a good relationship. Proverbs 18, 24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Man, there are good friends and there are bad friends. And, you know, Psychology Today took a survey of over 40,000 of their subscribers and 40,000 people in general uh, across the nation, and they did a survey of what are the most desirable characteristics of a friend. Okay, so some of you are like, you want to be a good friend? Uh, Well, this is what psychology today determined that most people are desiring from a relationship from a friend. Uh, Here they are, characteristics of a good friendship. The most likely highly uh, value traits are um, loyalty, kindness, uh, trustworthy, honest, frankness, and a sense of humor. Now, what's interesting is that survey took thousands and thousands of dollars to do. And uh, ironically, the thousands of dollars spent to discover this, they would have discovered had they only dug into the Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the Bible and we're going to see that those traits that are most desired by people in the world are actually the traits that God challenges us to when it comes to having good relationships and being a good friend. There's an old saying that says, I went out to find a friend but could not find one there. I went out to be a friend and friends were everywhere. So what I want to do today is I want to give you four characteristics 
of a good friend. You want to be a good friend? Then you need to be these four things. Here's the first one. Trait one is commitment. It means a loyal friend, a committed friend. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend is always loyal, and a brother is born to help in times of need or in times of adversity. That means that there are different levels. Man, a good, a true friend is loyal. And then there's this type of friend and there's family that, man, when times get tough, when adversity, when the tornadoes tear down our house, man, you're there. They're there for you. I was talking to uh, um, uh, Jessica today, about, you know, this morning about how, you know, in the South here, we're like, we're like very uh, family oriented. We're very positive. We're very outgoing. We're very, we're community driven. So, uh, you know, I'm sure these people that without homes are probably going to be in a home within the next day. Family, friends, church family, neighbors, because we live in a community down south there where people just are, are just loving and community-based. Uh, when adversity strikes, there's a lot of good friends down here, uh, but a good friend is always loyal. When the times get tough, when you're going through a hard time, when you're going through a struggle, when you've made a mistake. In fact, I said the best way to find who your friends are is make a mistake. You want to know who your friends are? I Don't go make a mistake on purpose. It's, you know, but if you really want to know who they are, when you're in, when you're in a tough time, see who's there. In prosperity, our friends know us, but in adversity, we know our friends. Bill Gothard, he said that there are different levels of friendship, and I agree. He says there's the acquaintance. That's the person who maybe you shook hands with and you meet, you know their name, or you maybe don't know their name, but you know their face. There's the acquaintance, and then there's the casual friend. That's the person who kind of shows up at the places you show up, maybe a coworker, maybe uh, people at some of the church friends are casual. And then there's the close friend, and these close friends are the ones that you invite to special life events, maybe a birthday party or a wedding. You see often, and you consider them close, and then there are intimate friends, and these intimate friends are the ones that help you to develop character in your life. And when we're talking about a good friend, we want to go past the acquaintance. We want to go past the casual. We want to go past even the close friend. And we want to be someone who is the intimate friend because that is the accountable friend. Many go their whole life without that last one. It's a dying trait. Being able to be trustworthy, being able to be loyal, someone who is committed to you is a dying trait. Fact is, every friend will disappoint you. Every friend. Because we are all sinners, and if we're Christians, we're sinners saved by grace. And and you need to realize that your friends are not going to be perfect. So when they fail you, or when they fail, when they make mistakes, a friend is always loyal. Always loyal. And someone said, well, I don't like to take sides. Let me tell you something. Friends take sides. You know, when I'm being attacked, whether I'm right or wrong, you know what? My wife is on my side. She may not always agree with what I do, but she is on my side. Always. I've got certain friends that I know, whether I'm being a fool or whether I'm doing the right thing, they're on my side. Isn't that good? Thank God for that. Because friends take sides. Friends are loyal. Friends and family are committed to each other. That is a powerful trait of a good, rich friend, a good, rich relationship. Trait number two, confidentiality, trust. Can you be trusted? I want to ask, can you be trusted? Can someone trust you? 
Are you the type of person that can be told something in confidence and you're going to keep it confidential? This is what Proverbs 17.9 says. It says, whoever would foster love covers over an offense. That means it doesn't mean you hide it. It means you uh, listen and you heal it, but you don't spread it. You keep it within the family. Like, for instance, when something happens in your friendship circle, you don't go telling the other friends. When something happens in your family, you don't go telling other people in the, in the friend family circle, you know, because love fosters or foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter, separates close friends. Speaking what's told in confidence will separate a friend. How many of you guys have ever experienced that before? Let's be honest. If you say you've told somebody something and they broke confidence. Now, some of you, you raised your hands. I'm sure some of you didn't even want to make the energy and because that person's right next to you. I'm just kidding. You broke and don't look at anybody in the room. You know, there's a saying, the reason a dog has so many friends is because a dog wags its tail instead of its tongue. Proverbs 11.13 says, a gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. Now, guys, listen, there are times when something must be told. There are times when confidence must be broken when they are making dangerous choices when their life is in danger when their marriage is in is in is is on the edge of total destruction you're not to keep secrets of affairs you're not to keep secrets of suicidal thoughts not to keep secrets of of criminal activity but you need to let that person know i care for you so much I cannot keep this to my, I often will tell people when I talk to young people or adults, I'll say, you know, this is confidential. It will not leave the circle. And then if they tell me something, I'll say, that is something that I must talk to somebody about. And I get their permission. I want them to know because I don't want to ever break their confidentiality or to feel that they can't trust me. I will never gossip or talk behind somebody because a trustworthy person keeps a secret, but a gossip betrays confidence. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Two-faced people. People who are two-faced, who say yes, and then in the, behind your back, they're disloyal or they're uncommitted or they're, they're untrustworthy. That kind of person destroys friendship. The unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Powerful verse. You will never be able to be accountable without someone with this characteristic. And by the way, this takes risk and it takes failure. That means you'll never learn how to be trusting until you extend it and try it out with people. And when you try it out, there's a possibility that person may betray your trust, but that doesn't mean there's not somebody out there that you can trust. Some of you, you've been hurt, you've been burned, and so you shut down the whole trust machine. There's like you don't confide in anybody, you don't trust anybody, you keep everything inside because you've been hurt too bad. Um, learning how to be intimate in that relationship, a friendship or a family requires risk, and some failure at this. So, so don't give up on it. There are people in this room who are confidential. There are good friends who want to be like Christ. Here's the third one is uh, constructive. Uh, committed, confidential, 
constructive. This is an encourager. A friend is someone who builds up, is a healer rather than a herder. They're endearing. They're kind. They're actually interested in others. They're interested in you. They're the kind of person that when you get with them, they want to know more about what you're doing than about trying to tell you everything they've been doing. That's the kind of person who does less talking and more listening. They make you feel special. They make you feel like you matter. Some of you have relationships. The man, when you leave them, you're like, man, I just, I feel like I'm important. I feel like I'm special. First Thessalonians 5.11 says, encourage one another and build each other up. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such that is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Proverbs 12.25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. There's a sense of encouragement. You know, uh, that's something that, that me and Nicole, we, we strive and we work really hard to be with uh, our relationships and with our people and with you, is that we strive to be encouragers. We want you to know that you're special in the eyes of God and you're special to us too. We want you to know that your life matters, not just to God, but to us Two, you are important. You're valuable. We want to be an encourager. What a powerful trait. Are you an encourager? Do people feel richer around you? Are you excited about someone's success and victories? Or are you jealous? When they tell you about some good news, about something that they were able to do or acquire or have or an achievement, do you get excited for them as an encourager, someone who's constructive in their life? Or do you spitefully inside cringe a little bit and get a little jealous or envious? That's a dangerous relationship if you are envious or jealous. Because there's three types of relationship moments. I've shared this before, but I think this is important. There's the deposits, the withdrawals, and the balance relationships. The deposits are those that whenever you get around them, you feel like they've just deposited into your life. Pa-ching, pa-ching, pa-ching. They're like raining encouragement into your life. So when you walk away from them, you feel like you're, you're richer, you're deposited. And then there is the withdrawals. The withdrawals are the people that when you leave them, you feel like, You're like, just take it all, take it all. You feel like you're going broke around this person, right? Now, all of us will withdraw at some point in our life. And some of us, we have moments in life where we are going through a struggle and we are a withdraw. We are withdrawing from the people around us. But it's not a habit in our life and we're more of a depositor than a withdrawal person. But let me tell you something. There's also the balance accounts. Those are the people that you high five, you handshake, and they don't withdraw or deposit. They just balance the account. Now, here's the deal. To be a rich person in good relationships, you need to make sure that you're getting more deposits than withdrawals. You need to make sure that you are the kind of person that deposits more than you take and that you're the kind of person that's receiving more deposits than withdrawals. Because you know what happens when you get more withdrawals than deposits? You get negative. And you go in the red, literally. You get physically, mentally, uh, financially withdrawn, and you feel negative, you feel angry, and you feel used. So uh, if you're feeling constantly as the someone who's withdrawn from, you know, like just withdrawals, 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 then you need to, to find some people, find some friends, build relationships with people in a church or community, 
that are going to deposit into your life. Okay? Withdrawals are a normal part of life. But you need to make sure your deposits are greater than the withdrawals. Here's the number four trait is candid. Canted, a candid. This is an honest, truthful person. We all have blind spots in our life, but good friends see and rescue us when we are heading in the wrong direction. Proverbs 25, 7 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. With love, a good friend will speak the truth. All right? When, when you have someone who's just not willing to, to speak into your life and tell you the, the, just the naked truth of, of your dilemma and, and challenge you, and they're just going to kind of wink at it or allow it because they don't want to offend you or hurt you or lose the relationship, they're not thinking of you. They're thinking of themselves. And better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 24, 26 says, An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. That's a real descriptive verse, isn't it? You say, a friend just, I just left a relationship, a meeting with a friend. It was like a kiss on the lips. You know, guys, when I go to the doctor, I don't want them to beat around the bush and tell me I'm fine when I have a tumor growing in my body. I don't want a doctor to tell me that I'm okay if my, my blood pressure is at stroke level. I don't want a doctor to tell me I'm okay if my blood pressure or if my cholesterol is extremely high and dangerous. I want my doctor to be candid. I want him to tell me the truth. We all need candid, loving, truthful friends. But guys, let me tell you something. Sometimes being candid may affect the relationship for a season. Sometimes when you tell the truth, the friend doesn't like it. And they get angry at you. And so they don't want to talk to you for a while. But if you're honest and you're candid and you're loving and the purpose of that conversation is to help them and to restore them, even though they may run for a season, they will be back. And they will say, I should have listened to you or thank you. Okay, so don't protect a friend because a true friend is, is candid, is honest and truthful, okay? The truth is we all need to choose our friends wisely, all of us, adults, teenagers, kids. Proverbs twelve twenty six says, the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way the wicked leads them astray. Proverbs 18, 24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Words of wisdom and words of warning here. Some friends will lead you astray, and some are good for you. Some are even dangerous for you. We must choose our friends wisely. Proverbs 13, 20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools, and you will get in trouble. <laughs> That's... That's a verse for a mug if I ever heard one. King David, uh, he wrote this in Psalm 119. David says, I am a friend to anyone who fears you, O Lord, anyone who obeys your commands. I mean, David set a precedent. I'm going to be close friends with those who love God. For those who are following and pursuing God with me, that's the kind of friend I'm going to have. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we often like to quote this to our teenagers. It says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. We like to quote it to kids, but guess who it was written to? Grown-ups. 
It was written to you, adult. It was written to you, uh, young woman, young man. It was written to you, adult. It was written to you, senior. It was written, we must all choose wisely our friendships. Well, you might think, well, Jesus hung out with sinners. So I, we should be hanging out with sinners. That is absolutely true. But, but, there's always a big but involved. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, it says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, or some say Beelzebub, that basically means it's a false idol or pagan. It represents the devil. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. What does that mean? Here's what it means. We often use that when it comes to dating, but this is about friendships, dating, and marriage. It's basically this. Anyone that we're going to walk through life with, our closest friends, our closest companions, should be followers of Christ. Yes, we should be hanging around those that are not Christians. Yes, we should have friends that are not Christians. How else will we be a light to the world? But our closest companions, the people we are joined arm in arm and walk through life with, the ones we have intimate conversations and relationship with, they should be followers of Christ. In fact, the people that Jesus surrounded himself with, they were those Those that he walked through life with, that he did life with, were followers of him. There were those that followed after his word and were followers of God. Those were the people that Jesus surrounded his daily life with. Proverbs 1.10 says, My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the Lord, the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, that prospers. See, sometimes a good friend has to say, no, I'm not going there. Well, I thought you were my friend. I thought you were going to go with me. I need you, man. I'm, I'm going to this club. I need to face off with this old girlfriend. I, you know, I just need someone. I'm having a bad day. I just need. Sometimes a good friend says no. Sometimes a good friend does not go to the places that are harmful to their spiritual life or journey with them. If a simple man entices you, do not give in to them. Do not walk with them. Do not be in step with them. There are times to say no even to friends when it affects your journey, your walk with God. That is why we are told that our most intimate, our closest, our committed, our companion friendships in our life should be followers of Jesus Christ. There's a friend that we all crave. Someone's phone, nice ring. There's a friend that we all crave, a friend who is loyal, a friend who is committed, a trustworthy, trusting friend who encourages us with perfect counsel, truthful and loving. If there is a friend Like that, I want him. His name is Jesus. He is a friend that we all need. Are you a friend of Jesus? Have you trusted him with your life? Because you won't be rich until you understand that great friendship. Here's the last thing, and I'm going to end with this. It's very short. Three things that define true riches, rich in generosity, rich with great relationships, and rich in grace. True wealth is spiritual riches. Everyone who accepts by faith 
what Christ has done for us on the cross for our sins. Through that, through God's grace, we are made rich. So if you have given your life to Christ, you are rich. You are rich indeed. 1 Corinthians 1.4 says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been made rich in every way. Christ pours out his rich grace in abundance. Ephesians 1.7, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Christ lavishes his grace and his kindness upon those who are his. We are exceedingly rich. We are made heirs in Christ through the cross. You think you're poor? Those who are poor in spirit are made rich in the grace of God. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through our that through his poverty, we might become rich, rich in grace. We were poor and we were dead, but Jesus makes us rich and alive. Christ alone brings true and lasting riches. I want to end with this thought. John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his own life for a friend. He's speaking of his life that he laid down for his friends, the disciples. And then he says, anyone who comes to me, you're going to be my friend too. He's speaking of the cross. And then he says in the next verse, you are my friends if you do what I command. See, Christ calls us to trust in him, to trust the cross, to have faith in his grace. James in chapter 2 says that Abraham was called a friend of God through his faith, because here's the reality. When we trust in him and his work and what the cross has done, we respond with obedience. So that's why he says, if you're my friend, you'll obey me, because trust leads to obedience because it's all about following Jesus Christ. So here's my prayer for you today. Are you rich? Worldwise, America's the richest people on the earth. But no matter how much money, how much wealth, how much pleasure, how much pursuit, how much possessions you have, you will always feel poor unless you understand generosity, friendship, and family and the grace of Jesus Christ. So I want to pray for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for those that are here today. God, I thank you, Lord, that... that Many of us are friends of God in this room. You've called us friends. We're no longer just servants, but, but friends. And God, I pray, first of all, that you'd help us as friends, that we would understand what it means to be a good friend, that through the grace that you've given to us, that we will extend that grace to others and learn how to be a friend who is committed and loyal and confidential, that, God, we will be the kind of friend that is, uh, can be trusted in, a friend that, that is uh, committed. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be the kind of friend that you are to us. God, I pray that you'd help us to be a friend that is truthful. God, there are some people here that have a friend that they have to call and that they have to confront because that's what a good friend does. 
God, I pray that you'd help us to not put our trust in the riches of this world, but learning that we would learn how to be, however, to be generous, content with what we have, and gracious givers to kingdom work and kingdom business and to the lives of those around us. But God, I pray if there's anyone here who's poor in spirit, that God, you would see that and help them to be rich in you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. If you can recognize your depravity, if you can recognize how poor you are in spirit, Christ will meet you right there and he will make you rich in spirit. So with with everyone just head bowed, are you a friend of God? You can be right now. I want to invite you, if you'd like to be a friend of God, if you'd like to, to be rich in him, then uh, just pray this prayer with me. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, let's pray it together. Dear Jesus, thank you for leaving heaven for me. You became poor so that I could be rich in spirit. Forgive me of my sin. Thank you for the cross Help me to walk with you. Teach me to be a friend like you are to me. I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living with Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.